You're listening to My Unlived Life, a podcast about the path not taken. I'm Miriam Robinson. A few years ago, my life fell apart in pretty dramatic fashion, and I found myself feeling that somewhere I'd made a wrong turn. I suddenly felt very far from home and family, and felt even farther from myself. I began to wonder, what if I had done things differently? We don't like to ask this question. It threatens to trap us in the past without a map back to the here and now. So I decided to make the map. Each episode, I interview someone about another course their lives could have taken. We begin at the point where their paths diverged and together, step-by-step, we imagine ourselves into the lives they never lived. Because these lives have a lot to teach us about ourselves, if we let them. For this episode, I spoke to the author Tanya Shadrick, a former hospice scribe whose first public work was a mile of writing composed pen on paper beside England's oldest outdoor pool. She is the founder of the Selkie Press and editor of Wild Woman Swimming, a journal of West Country Waters. Her memoir, The Cure for Sleep, an indescribable, unforgettable story of a life changed forever by sudden near death, is published by Weidenfeld and Nicholson and is available from your local bookshop. When we spoke, Tanya and I explored what her life would have been like if, at the age of 13, she'd felt confident enough to attend a pool party being thrown by a very intriguing, very bohemian new boy at her school. Along the way, we discussed what opening up to others can teach you about yourself, the importance of methodical movement in a world that values speed, and the economics of changing your life. Hi, Tanya. Hello, Miriam. Thank you for inviting me to join you. I'm really, really happy to have you here. It's not just because I really enjoy talking to you, which I do, um, and not just because uh, your memoir, The Cure for Sleep, is just one of the most staggeringly beautiful books I've read recently. It's just such a joy and such an experience, but also because uh, it deals so deeply in the unlived life, Uh, the sort of experiences and the emotions and the moments that we miss for any number of reasons. And so uh, I was wondering if to start us off today, you would just say a little bit about about the book and about about unlived lives in the context of your writing. Thank you. And it was so exciting to have this chance to, to talk about that, because um, that's one of the main ways I describe the book, that it's an exploration of unlived lives, mine, my mother's, um, the women in my line, the women in my rural working class community in which I grew up, um, the stories of women I've met since then, um, which have come out through being a mother in a small town and being very intimate with other women. So I believe it's something that men experience too, to be clear. But for me, it's a story of a particular type of female unlived life, um, mm. where it's, you're taught from a very young age or too much or too little or you're always the wrong size and shape and and there are so many social expectations and my story um it took my suddenly a death at 33 for me to fully see in in what I believe was my last minute of living how many opportunities I'd turned away from and I had that strange thing that people who have near deaths often Mm. describe where it felt like a perpetual minute. I was in no pain and it felt like I had all the time in the world to look back at my life. It didn't flash before my eyes. I had this, I had this eternity in which to think about the life that I had led until that age. And there were many things I was proud of, but there were many private shames of turning away from opportunity and risk and adventure. And I fully apprehended all of those before I, well, I believed I was dying. Um, and then when, of course, when I came back to life, that's a real life challenge to come back to life as a new mother when you're fully stuck in a small town and in your role as a wife and mother. Yeah, absolutely. As if being a new mother isn't enough. You sort of, <laughs> yeah. you really, you kind of super loaded yourself oh, there. Sure. Can you say uh, just briefly, uh, and it's in the book, obviously, but about that near-death experience, just what, what happened there? So it was 10 days after my first child had been born. I'd had an emergency cesarean, but, you know, nothing complicated as far as doctors were concerned. So I'd been sent home and the book begins with, because I, I describe in the very first pages of the book how my husband and I, we met at 19, so by 33, we've already been together, you know, 13 years. 
and we live like a couple in a fairy tale we're kind of out of time we live like something from medieval times like the shoemaker and his wife we call ourselves we've got no (laughs) friends but each other we live a completely risk adverse lifestyle shuttling between home and the office um and the midwife has just left sort of congratulating me on my neat mend and how well I've healed and we're congratulating ourselves on how quickly we've absorbed the new baby into our our um peaceful quiet you know life of husbandry (laughs) the house is already tidy that muddle of new parenting we didn't have we were neat you know everything was running like clockwork and then I reached for a book from a shelf and, and this blood just came um and and I knew that I was in danger I barely managed to get the phone picked up and call for an ambulance and I would have died in under seven minutes it turned out later it was an arterial hemorrhage um Mm. so so very rare it was painless I didn't feel ill when it happened which is what made it so existential because I was just simply tipped upside down by the ambulance crew and they just drove me away without words or touch from home and husband and and I began to die in the ambulance that's when I had the sort of quite classic near-death experience of seeing a light and going towards it and it feeling quite Mm. transcendental well and it's it's I think I have a feeling we'll continue to talk amongst other things about the juxtaposition of the of the tidy and it makes me think again of of you talking about about women being taught that they're too much you know and I think our our desire to sort of contain things and keep them all wrapped up and and cozy is is a strong one and it leads as you say to this sense of of missing out and not living a full life and and so the mess sort of came for you in the most extreme sort of way didn't it I think that was the thing I wanted to do with the memoir is that so many of our great classic transformational memoirs I love them I've read them all the classic transformational journey in in women's life writing of the last 10-15 years has been um a woman who's lived a quite wild, chaotic 20s or 30s, drug abuse, alcohol abuse in response, um, promiscuity in response to childhood trauma. And the redemption comes from taking some like quest, solo quest, and then you reach a kind of new family shape. But with me, it happened in a very different way. And I think it's actually true to a lot of people's experience. I think there are just as many people in our societies who keep everything under self-control and who sublimate all their needs into caring for others and being respectful members of their community. And there aren't as many stories available for those people of when you reach a a time in your life as I did, where you can outrun childhood trauma through order and respectability anymore. And it's a harder story to tell in some respects. It doesn't meet our classic Western tradition going back 2000 years of you leave to enliven your life. I want to write a book about being quiet. <laughs> also, what I what I really love about it, which I, I also think is really unique, is I think that often the moment of sort of revelation or epiphany um, in uh, sort of cultural narratives is followed by sort of radical and immediate change. And what I really, really enjoy about your book is that is that what we follow is you have your moment of of near death and of realization. But your your reconfiguration of self is slow, and it's not. There's a sense of knowing what you don't want to go back to, but but the unfolding of you as somebody who is not trying to deal with your trauma through order is is methodical and and takes time. And I think you know we love we love the dramatic epiphany and the sudden life change and the chucking it all in and moving to Tibet or whatever it is. But this is this, it feels it felt very real to me. Yeah, and I think that's the way I describe it. It's like, how how do you change your life where you are? And to be clear, I'm not saying people should never leave their marriages or their children. I think I think my mother should have left her second mm. marriage. Um, it, it doesn't even have to be a question of physical safety. Sometimes it's just your soul is dying slowly inside a relationship and it's okay to leave your children. There are responsible ways to mm. do that. But in my particular circumstances, because I had been abandoned as a child and because I had a good and loving husband... Yes. My, I did want to run away. I did want to pack my bags and go to rack and ruin was the phrase in my head. I just didn't care whether I lived or died. I wanted to be free and on my own. Uh, but you see me in the book deciding that that isn't something I can do. Yes. Quickly, before we go into your path, can you, because your path um, begins uh, in your teenage years, 
I was wondering if you could just quickly say just a bit about your childhood. Obviously, there's a huge amount of it in the book, but just give us a little context where and when and sort of what the what your situation was that led up to the moment of your path. And then we'll then we'll dive in. So I grew up in a very small rural working class uh, community, agricultural community um, in in Devon, um, on the Devon North Cornwall border and very much you know, there weren't a lot of people from away. We used to call them people from away. They tended to be um, like uh, teachers or, um, you know, CND kind of people, you know, left-wing people who'd come down maybe with an idea of starting a good life down there with the cheaper. But fundamentally, in the 70s, when I was growing up, 70s and 80s, almost everybody belonged to a well-known local family. Right. You know, everyone was somehow related to quite a lot of other people in the community, which meant that... Uh, and it's also a, a big working class British rural working class trope is that I grew up in a, a place where respectability for working class people was a real core cultural story for me, which in effect means you can't do anything out of the ordinary. Anything unconventional um, could cause your kind of stock to fall really fast. And my dad had left before I was two years old for another woman in the, in the town below us where we lived in our tiny hamlet. And my mum, who'd been really valued suddenly became less respectable because she'd been left it's a very hard life lesson to grow up with as a small girl we really struggle as a single mum and daughter in that small town and then when I'm nine she remarries and it's you know savagely unhappy marriage I show the the fear of living with two very very angry and unhappy adults in a very isolated house with no streetlights outside and and no kind of you know I lived in a very remote country lane with two very angry people and so you see me at the age of nine making on one particularly bad day this like whole life decision that I have to keep myself safe Mm. and that I have to use education as a way to sort of tunnel beyond home and town so at nine I'm like a kind of middle-aged man almost who feels like they're a breath <laughs> it's a very strange psychological profile I developed from that age so school is very important to me I kind of suffer through weekends and holidays and yeah there's not a lot of joy there Um, I'm just very focused on the future and getting myself out. So that's who I am in my teenage years. Let's talk about your path. Can you say uh, what it is? It's when I'm 13, this boy arrives in my small rural comprehensive and I describe him as like a swift and a swallow. He was just this golden child. His clothes was different. You know, it was all kind of soft and cut differently. Like he wore like a granddad shirt to school instead of a shirt with a collar and just like nothing I'd ever seen. And of course, I, I say in the book, I didn't have a language for class back then. But what I was perceiving was class. He came from a, a very particular type of bohemian. I mean, it was so beyond my vocabulary. It wasn't just a middle class person. I was seeing a very bohemian child whose parents spoke four mm. languages and who traveled around the world. So they kind of and for a couple of years, they would arrive back in our community, like for the summertime. A a house with a swimming pool, an outdoor swimming pool. And when they were there, the swimming pool would be open. And, you know, just, yeah, I just adored him, but also really his clothes and just some, and he, you know, he had a music case with him and he hung out (laughs) with the other teacher's kids and they all hung out. (laughs) Okay. So this boy arrives and, and what happens? He invites you to something fabulous. Yeah. There's this one day in tutor time when he sort of just looks at me and says oh we're having a pool party on the weekend you know just come over we you know you come over and, and I've got this line in the book where I say it, he was asking me instead of the girls to whom everything happened <laughs> I love that line because you know those girls you know the girls to whom everything happened and the idea yeah. that like the focus could shift and it could be you and that things could happen yeah. to you is just it's too much. Yeah, to me, it seemed like completely unprecedented. I had no sense of why he'd suddenly leveled his attention on me. So he invites you to the party and? And he is where it all unravels. So I am filled with unfamiliar by then joy and energy. <laughs> and my swimming costume from the previous summer doesn't fit anymore. And so there's like this 
boutique it was called the boutique in our town and and I went there and it was this nasty shiny bright swimming soon it was all wrong and I knew it but I still go and I get on my bike and I cycle down back lanes for miles from my village towards the manor house and its outdoor swimming pool when I'm singing aloud you know I was I was like a sky high with joy and excitement <laughs> because it's like I, I knew I belonged with them you know I knew I belonged with the type of kids that have interests outside of school and the television. And I don't know how I knew that, but I knew I belonged. Because at that point, although I was good at my lessons, I had no cultural capital. We had no library. I'd not had access to classics. (laughs) And yet part of me knew I wanted a life of art and, and beauty. So I'm cycling there and I arrive at the big metal gates to the manor house. And, and then yeah, I stop at the entrance. I don't cycle through. I make the fatal mistake of stopping and thinking, I know I'll just peek through the hedge to see how they all look before (laughs) I go in, just to check who's there. And then, of course, I just decide I can't go in wearing what I'm wearing. And then I'm like, okay, well, I'll just watch them all afternoon. And then when I'm invited next time, Oh, how funny. I've got tears in my eyes. It's oh, such a love. light story in one way, but it surprises strong feeling in me because isn't this true of people's lives that we make? And that's what I experience in the regret of the near death. Like all the times I had decided I was too proud to be a beginner in a new group or a new club or society or times when I decided my clothes and my accent meant I didn't belong, even if I'd been invited in. Mm. And this was the first example of that, of going, Oh, I'll prepare for next yes. time. But there isn't a next time. I never get invited again. So you, you you wait and you sit and you watch and you think next time you'll be ready and then the invite just doesn't come again and that's it. That was your moment. Because mm-hmm. he moves away to a boarding school next summer. So there is no next summer where these kids <gasps> do this thing. Oh, it is. It is. It's really, it really, it's heartbreaking. It's a kind of my, it's what I call, um, there's a repeating phrase in the book about minor key, minor key life. So it's not tragic. It's not traumatic. It's like a minor key sadness. But those are real keys to where we want to develop in life. You know, where we get the little lump in the throat. I think the poet Robert Frost said, the lump in the throat. Ah, is where you find the meat. That's where your poem comes from, wherever you find the lump in the throat. And that, that's a little lump in the throat. So I think we're at our moment because um, this feels really, really weighty and, and lovely. And as you say, it's it's a small thing. I love that, the minor key. Um, but there's there's a lot in it. So you cycle joyously to the party. You get there. You get off your bike. Maybe you look around the side to see what they're wearing. Maybe you don't, but whatever reason, whatever happens, you walk in the door. Even though I knew that's what we were going to be doing, it's (laughs) still amazing that that's a challenge. That this, it's still, and I've written a book and I live a life and I, I never turn away from opportunity anymore. But look, look at that. It's like I'm back. I feel like I'm physically back at the gates. I'm going to go through the gates and I'm going to lay my bike down. And, you know, because I can I can see those girls um, and I never spoke to them. So I can see exactly who's there. I can remember exactly what they looked like because I so fetishized how they looked. Mm. Um, What do I do? See, where are they? Are they all sitting around the pool? Yeah, they're kind of jumping in and out and they're just sitting around, you know, it's just like what what teenagers, what, you know, norm, it's what my son does. My son's so at home in his skin and he's grown up near this like, you know, famous outdoor Lido in our town. And mm-hmm. until COVID, that's what he and my daughter have done. They, they go down there with their friends and they spend hours jumping in and out and then eating something and then lying around and then going back in normal kind of relaxed, non-traumatized teenagers <laughs> do. But of course, the the picture begins to complicate because if I'd ever joined them and begun to talk to them, I would have started to discover maybe something about what their lives were like, Mm. as opposed to just some image I had projected onto them. So I don't know what I would, well, I do know now what I would have heard because very recently one of those people has come back into my life as a result of the book, has asked to meet me, but 
has read the book and, and gone, gosh, I'm one of those girls. I'm one of the people at the pool party. Now I'm already, just in the last week, now I have a really new and vivid sense of what life was like for those teachers' children. And it was a heck of a lot more fun than mine. They were on, they were having beach parties. They were staying mm. up late. They, it was a lot freer than my life. Their parents were living a really vivid life. Let's get a tiny bit more specific and kind of get you back. I, I, I know it feels uncomfortable, but let's get you back. Let's get, let's get you back mm. beside the pool. Do you talk to somebody? I imagine mm. what would have happened is actually, although the boy would have been the kind of object of my, of my kind of desire, I imagine what would have happened is the woman who's come to visit me recently, who was, I realize now really yeah. shy, I probably would have ended up sitting next to her and we would have started talking. <laughs> Lovely. What do you talk about? We, we will, we talk about the fact that I've grown up there and she's come from London. So yeah, we would have just been two girls talking about feeling a bit out of place. You're talking about being out of place, but it gives you a way to think of yourself as somebody who does belong to this, this rural, you know, existence you belong to. Yeah. And it's what we talked about at the very beginning about this thing of when you step through these physical and also Mm. internal boundaries that we place upon ourselves and you risk a conversation with somebody you you start to learn as you say so much about yourself through conversation with someone else you get a perspective on how you are seen and so she would have told me how I appeared to them yes absolutely I'm I'm having this conversation with my daughter at the moment because she um she thinks everyone just thinks she's the smart one and it's very difficult for her in part because obviously if if anything happens which um messes with that identity Mm. we've talked about how you know in, there's a lot of different parts of her and also that her different friends can help her see different parts of her, right? If she, the more she reaches out, it's, you know, somebody will see you as the funny one and somebody will see you as the, as the sensitive yeah. one, or, you know, that then you're absolutely right that other people opening up those conversations with other people can absolutely mm. help you access those bits. Can I just say lucky girl that she's able to have that kind of perspective through you as a parent, because, you know, I had, that's the thing, no help with yeah. that. You know, that stuff that happened. I did that. Those are perspectives I worked really hard to achieve in my late thirties and early forties. I mean, what a gift to a child to have that help to go, you know, the more people you meet and let yourself come into contact with, you're going to get, more durable, more flexible models of how to feel good about yourself. If you can let her know when she's a teenager that I was a really, really good <laughs> mom, <laughs> that would be great. <laughs> I will. I'll send a fan Thank there. You. <laughs> um, okay, so you guys have this talk where you sort of open up um, and sort of a little a little um, connection forms. Uh, why don't we go to the next day at school? What's, what's it like? Well, it's different, isn't it? That girl I think I would have most connected with wasn't in that, but the beautiful boy was. (laughs) So, you know, we probably would have started sitting together and talking and things. It would just be enough to have a different identity. It would have just broken that, that you can get really locked into a solitude so much deeper than you ever meant at certain times in your life. Mm. So, yeah, that person's talking to me at tutor time. And then, of course, there's going to be other social plans that summer. Okay. What are those like? I would just started to probably expand down into our, our resort town, which was Bude, which is about five miles away. You know, and there was like a surf, surf culture down there. And, you know, it would have just, I would have probably expanded then beyond village life as well. And I would have been in a big town that wasn't my little inland hometown. I'd have been in that place where local teenagers went to be kind of fully free. So if you're you're fully free now, you're in your second, say, third year of secondary and you're you're expanding out and and what does that look like what do you do when you go to town again because I'm with a group of people with a different aesthetic I'm like enjoying buying clothes you know just simple things I just did not I wasn't sad all the time I mean I was at home I did cry almost every day at home because living with my mum and my stepdad was just unrelenting I mean they argued every single day 
Um, mm. But when I was at school, I wasn't always unhappy. And when I was on my own in my bedroom and things were quiet downstairs, I wasn't always, I wasn't depressed. I, I was kind of, I don't know what I did with my time, but there wasn't a lot of um, fun. I didn't, but even back there, back then, you know, in the resort town, there were like surf shops that sold mm. really nice jumpers. And, you know, I would have been probably spending money whereas instead what was happening was I was saving I had this fish and chip shop job on weekends and I was saving hundreds and hundreds of pounds for my escape fund I mean really spending nothing that set up a whole lifelong pattern of not buying anything which again is quite unusual but yeah it would have just been enjoying youth so the the immediate thing that's happening is that you're as you say you're enjoying youth but suddenly you're you're spending and you're engaging with sort of material things in a different way. And that means that, well, do you still have the job at the fish and chip shop in this other life? I probably wouldn't have needed that escape fund. So I would have just been indulged in escapism. I probably would have coped with the misery at home by just having fun and going out and hanging out at other people's houses on the more negative side, I know that there would have been more alcohol in my life, a much more standard teenage pattern, particularly for children from difficult homes. There would have been access to drinking. I think I would have gained in yeah. friendship and access to the kind of life I wanted to grow towards. You know, there would have been adults with books who knew about the things I wanted to know about, but there would have also been parties with alcohol because I was so unhappy there's the real risk I would have just disappeared into that and not come back out again I'm just interested in something that you said um briefly which is this idea of being exposed to these adults who have these really kind of rich interests and you probably would have been around their house for dinner Mm. and where do you go do you think do you think it goes dark Mm. or do you think it goes enriching That's where I think it would be enriching because I have always had a real talent for finding mentors. Okay. And I think that is a result of having so few adults. I think through necessity from a really young age, I was completely formed around seeing just teachers liked me because they could see I was like an engine of learning. And I appreciated teachers because they would, tell me things or show me opportunities so there's like a lovely little bit early in the book and she's still alive I think she's in her 90s Mm. my very first teacher I just adored her and and there's a scene in the book where she kind of gives me this pyramid of words to read and I can read them all somehow I'm five I've just shown up at school and university is the top word and I can say it phonetically but I don't know what it means Mm. and she says it's where you're Mm. gonna go it's where people like you belong where you live and you read and you eat books. Now, by the time I'm nine, that becomes my goal. So I was very good at, um, yeah. at connecting with people. So I feel really quite sure that even though they're from a very different class and, and very involved in their very exciting lives, I have no doubt that I would have become close to some of those parents, the fathers as well as the mothers. And, of course, I had no yeah. male yeah. role models at all. I had none until I met my mentor of sculptor David Nash when I was in my 40s, apart from my husband, like no male role models at all or support. That's a really big theme in the book is is social class. And I know that reads differently in cultures across the world, but broadly speaking, and of course, there's a very particular English form of it, but broadly speaking, that's a really big thing in the book about, um, about class as a barrier. Um, it keeps people smaller than they're perhaps intended to be. Um, you belong to a group and there's something nice about belonging. As I said, I belong to a small community where people had always lived there. Um, and I think there are times in our lives when we we maybe could have changed class or belonged to a different type of per- group of people, but it doesn't always come back to us. Sometimes that turning away is forever. I mean, I eventually... It's only really now, although I did get away to university at 18, um, I would say it's only really, so economically, I I changed my my lifestyle. But culturally, it's only now that I'm surrounded by artists and writers and I'm almost 50. So that turning away at the pool party took me on a very long diversion. And it's only now I'm coming back to the kind of lifestyle that I think I was naturally yearning for, which is looser and brighter. 
Which is really extraordinary because as you say, I think once we turn away once and then maybe we turn away twice, it's almost like because we're sort of um, creatures of habit, aren't we? And we, we, we follow, we start to follow our own pattern and you, you sort of set a groove in your brain that says, this is how things are done. And before yeah. you know it, you're, as you say, you're older yeah. and you've, you've decided that this is how things are done. Well, so let's, let's get back into the different stream of experience. Yeah. So you're, you're, you're sort of in secondary, you've, you've expanded, you've not gone down the road of pretending or feigning arrogance um, in order to protect yourself. You're you're dealing with uh, sort of more cultured adults, and let's say you're you're coming up on your decisions about university. And one th- there's a couple of interesting things to note so far. One is that because you've been spending and not saving, you don't have any money. <laughs> um, yeah. So you're more expansive, but you're broke. What are you thinking about university? Say first where you did go to university, and then let's think about where um, where you might have ended up. So I went to Sussex University and that's why I live where I live because I've only lived in these two places. So I left North Devon for Sussex University when I was 19 and this is where I still live. I live four (laughs) miles from the university still and I worked at the university for 15 years after graduating after a brief period in television where all the doors were held open for me and I was being paid more and more money and everyone was saying, you're going to be a commissioning director at the BBC at a young age. You know, that potential people have always seen in me. I turned away again, scuttled back to the university and got a very well-paid admin job, which I stayed in happily Mm. until the near death. So, (laughs) So I went to Sussex. It was the only university that made me an offer And true to say, it was the only place I could consider going um, because when I applied to university, I had no idea where they were. I had to get a map out. I never traveled beyond Devon. So I didn't know where Sussex was. I didn't know where Liverpool and Leeds were. I didn't know where any of the... I'd heard of Oxford and Cambridge. I chose my universities on a single morning sitting in a careers library at my big anonymous um, tertiary college on my own with no discussion but Sussex caught my imagination because there was a picture of and this is on the very first pages of the book there was a picture of Virginia Woolf one of the really classic pictures of her with her hair all pinned up when she's a young woman and and the prospectus said that she had lived nearby and at that time the university did own her house which is now in the National Trust but at the time when I applied they owned all of her papers beyond her diaries and they also owned the house she'd lived in and I'd not even read her books at this point but she was one of the very few women writers I'd heard of beyond Jane Austen and it was just enough in an absence of any real cultural knowledge that was enough for me to go oh it's in the countryside it's near the coast there will be cows and sheep there if it's good enough for her it's good enough for me and that's how I chose my university so now you you do have more information presumably you're probably talking to all of these ex-Londoners about you know where they went to university and where they think you should study and I'm guessing they're maybe advising you you've definitely got more expanded horizons in terms of your choice what do you think you would have done I would have been able to ask them and their parents about university applications um and you know this is where, when I finally came across the writings of Jeanette Winterson, I really, I recognized myself. I was like, well, I'm cut from that cloth. I kept myself safe. And like her, she worked her way through A to Z in the local library when she's homeless and living in a little mini. And I left home at just mm. at 16. And I've looked after myself ever since, um, living in bedsits and all sorts of dangerous places like she had to. And I thought, yeah, that's, that's me. I'm that type of person. But she had this other level of kind of personal confidence that I lacked. Let's say I applied to Oxford or Cambridge and was yeah. made an offer because that's another. So because I'm in that mode and, you know, it, it, I, you know, and I got I got one of the top first. Well, I think I got the top first in my English cohort at Sussex. I failed my first year through culture shock. It was always the confidence thing undercutting me. So let's say I got there. I don't think I would have made it. I think, let's say I got through the interview process. Which one are we at? Are we at Oxford or Cambridge? So I'm at Cambridge. I'm following in the footsteps of Sylvia Plath, Ted Hughes, you know, because I devoured in my 20s the biographies of, of Plath and Ted Hughes and people, their their lives. So that was my dream life to be like Sylvia Plath and, and young Ted. 
you know, because I've got through the interview with some kind of bolshiness that I did always have at key points, I could kind of really flare up in almost like outrage at people and the way they treated me. So I've done that. I've got through the interview and that's where it all falls apart. And and the pool party would have made no difference. I'm really clear on that. There was too much cultural baggage I was carrying and no amount of middle class friendships or mentoring from middle class parents would have, I think, erased that deep inherited sense and learned sense of this is not for the likes of you. Wow. I think I would have summoned the brilliance at interview maybe to convince people to give me a place. I've always been really good at that. So you you get there, it's happening and then and then what is it? What 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 blows up? You or do you just one day you just decide it's not working? I from the very first week I start to turn away repeatedly okay. from everything. So I don't speak in, and a version of this happened in my first year at Sussex. It was the first time in my life. The one thing I'd always had was a sense that I was yeah. I was clever and I was able to ask good questions. Uh, I'd never suffered from like what we now call imposter syndrome because I was always so open to learning. But in my first weeks at Sussex, I was hearing accents that I'd never really heard before. People looked physically different than me. They just, I looked so rustic and strange and I stopped talking and I stopped engaging. Um, and so that, and I don't believe that would have changed from having more middle-class friends growing up. I think that would have still thrown me because I still have an accent now, but it was really strong in my 20s. Um, and I think I would have just, I would not have coped with the eating arrangements there or the kind of social rituals around certain types of dress at certain times. I used to often eat just alone in my room on a tray, very rarely ever ate with people. So in a sense, the, the pool party would have been this brief flaring up of kind of light and brilliance and fun. But I think I probably would have, that, but those relationships and families wouldn't have sustained me materially beyond the point mm. where I moved away from Devon. I don't see those as homes and families I would have been able to go back to no more than I saw my own birth family as anything I could go back to. So I think I would have just been alone in a place where I had fundamentally failed and and the bar is set higher. So yeah, I, I honestly, I, I foresee a life in which I knew more about books. I'd had some more experience, but I think I would have been a dropout and I think I would have been working in hotels and things, which is what I did every time at Path crashed for me and then I think I would have been on a path that so many people have where you're not held safe by a career or but belonging to a big organization you haven't got certain academic qualifications that are needed now for even so many entry-level jobs and and then you kind of life sort of you live a life and there are good moments and there are joys but life doesn't really have a shape or a direction and I think you can end up being quite reactive to events. Do we think that's what? Let's let's think it out a little bit. You got a job in Cambridge, and um, as you said, obviously in your real life at this point, you met your husband, which was a has been a hugely sustaining relationship. Mm. In this scenario, you don't. And and that's really hard. This is where the the format of this is. It's both fascinating, but it's also a challenge because I fundamentally although I've had all sorts of life challenges, fundamentally, I think one of the best things that ever happened was that I had the good fortune at the end of my first year to walk through the door into a summer job for cleaning up other students' rooms once they'd left them in a disgusting mess. And, and there was this boy who had just graduated but had done that in his previous summers and thought, actually, I've got nowhere to go yet, so I'll just do this for the summer and save a bit of money and then I'll go travelling for a year. So I met him on his very mm. last day at university and he'd had in his head the kind of girl he wanted to meet. He'd always wanted a girl who did English because <laughs> he studied sciences but actually really loved stories. But because of his class constrictions, you know, he grew up in a mining right. valley during the strikes he turned away from arts and picked computing because he thought he would, and he was right, he's had a, a secure wage since he was 21 um, in, in the same company pretty much. So he, he made a good uh, financial and logistical choice, but he lost a lot of dimension to his life by turning away from art and stories. He didn't know how to access mm. it any more than I had. And so then this, this English girl bounced in and I had a little shelf of books. He'd never <laughs> seen so many books. <laughs> And, 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 and 
and so although life continued to have lots of challenges fundamentally I went through life with a best friend from the age of 20 onwards which I think is really rare um and I it's hard for me to imagine it's really it's like when when someone asks us to to imagine our children don't exist and I think the other thing I can see for that other path, going back to the life you, ne- you need me to focus on, is as well as casual work, I think there would have been a lot of casual sex. Okay. Um, and I, well, I know there would have been because that was my way of coping with, I, I've never taken drugs or, or been interested in drink. But in that, you know, given I met my husband so young, I'd had a period of, you know, I'd slept with a lot of people, you know, in the ages of like, and I'd had serious boyfriends sequentially as a teenager, but I would have been probably more promiscuous already because I was with that bigger group. Yeah. But I think my long-term damage meant that that was always my solution. Just proximate, you know, just like going to bed with boys Okay. was my preferred drug of choice. That was how I lost my edges. That was how I met something in me, that need for closeness with people that children get from loving adults, which I just hadn't had just like physically because my, my father never held me once but like never never was hugged by my dad once or my stepdad so it was only through sex that I ever got physical affection I think that's not an uncommon trauma response in that sense if you have that denial of physical closeness so what would have made it particularly difficult is I was really in a fast downward spiral before I got myself to Sussex on my year off I was sleeping around I was just falling really fast because I had no safety net that wouldn't have happened but because I would have had more access to drink and drugs I think that natural tendency for sexual promiscuity and the lack of a safety net would still have been there but I would also probably be dancing more going to clubs more so actually some of the things that made my childhood really dark and dangerous I think would have been accelerated and accentuated I think I would have been in some really dangerous situations with nobody to call wow so we're we're in Cambridge you're you're maybe holding down a job in a in a hotel cleaning somewhere yeah and and I can talk but when I do meet people I I can talk the talk it's obvious I'm clever and so I'm a kind of funny mix of somebody in a low road job but I know a lot of stuff and that's going to attract a certain type of person but it's not going to attract anyone who's going to want to help me change my life and where does it yeah what happens Um, next do you think because where I mean you're still relatively young you know you're 18 19 maybe um does this go on for a long time I think it does. I think this is, you know, um, I, I really admire the work of Amy Liptrot. I just devoured her new follow-up book, Seven Years On From The Outrun, last night about her year in Berlin that she takes mm. in her, her early 30s. But, you know, as most people who are listening to this will know, The Outrun's yeah. become a classic um, because it describes a really difficult childhood with a parent who has mental illness. And then she is an alcoholic and she, you know, she goes clubbing. And, you know, and she has temporary jobs and she lives in lots of temporary accommodation. And that is absolutely, even though that is not what I lived, I only lived that for one year between A-levels and going off to Sussex. Biographically, I have none of that in my actual timeline. But when I read The Outrun, I was like, that's absolutely a self I could have been. I absolutely understood her responses. I understood how far away she was from that family that was struggling up in Orkney. I understood how clubs were a place where she could slip her skin, that euphoria of that she's like right so brilliantly yes. about dancing. And which is something I never do. I don't dance. In this other life I would have been I would have been clubbing, I would have been losing myself in music, bass beats, alcohol, moving from bed sit to bed sit yeah she describes beautifully and painfully that process by which you know 10 years go by you know it's not a slow movement from 18 to 30 and because I now meet so many people who talk to me so openly and freely of their lives I understand why the book I've written is quite unusual because and why those stories of recovery in 30s and 40s from kind of a lost 20s is our main cultural story because it is what happens to so many people that's what Cheryl Strades Wilde describes I really do think 10 especially if you're an attractive young woman I think you know you can pass 10 years really fast in a series of like 
hookups, short relationships, relationships last three years, take a long time to get over. You know, a decade gets eaten up really fast. I was thinking when you were speaking about the outrun, absolutely. Um, and wild is a great is a great one as well. And and I guess, you know, as you say, in both of those, something happens in their thirties or at some point, you know, after this sort of wash of time has gone by where they've just sort of disappeared in the sort of muddle of it. Um, and it sounds like, it sounds like you have the same thing. So what, at some point something happens. Can you think of what that is for you? Let's say, let's say it's 10 years, your early thirties. Honestly, I think knowing me and knowing the kind of situations I got myself into in the, the really lost year before I got myself to Sussex. Yeah. I think with me, I would have got into some seriously dangerous, like, sexual territory. I think somebody would have probably hurt me. Oh, Tanya. Um, I, I really can picture me having been hurt or I think it would have taken – because, it, look, in this life, it took – you know, given – because I, I don't go into details, but the childhood trauma was constant and relentless from, like, you know and, – and even before my mother and me remarried, she was – really visibly struggling with being a single parent so from the age of three onwards I didn't feel safe so my whole biochemistry is shaped by that and no amount of you know pool party friends was going to rewire that that's an interesting and I that the description of it is your biochemistry is really interesting that, that it is it is it is completely physical I learned to put all my feelings I couldn't cope with into my body mm. like so stomach ache as a small child then sore throats and then it got worse and worse and worse. So mm-hmm. I would be physically not very well. And like I say, no amount of access to middle-class culture, that would have changed the settings for my life. Fundamentally, there was always going to be a reckoning in that other life that I took. And I think it would have come mm-hmm. later or in a less supported fashion. Um, and I wouldn't have the savings behind me. Because, of course, in my okay. book, when I get this big life crisis and I realize, fine, I get my two children because I'm so self-controlled. I get my two children into school. Yeah. And it's only seven years after the emergency that I say to my husband, I don't think I can go back to work. I love my job. I wanted to stay in it forever for the security because I love campus. But I think I've got to stop for a while. Um And, of course, I had all this money in the bank because we saved one salary from the age of 21 or 23 onwards. We saved one of our salaries every month. And you'd been very good and very tidy and very responsible and you'd kept everything contained. Yeah, and we don't buy things and we didn't go on holidays. And so we got a natural amount of money saved for people that don't have wealthy parents and never inherited. Like, you know, we don't have trust funds. We've got a lot of savings. And, of course, in this other scenario, I wouldn't have that. Because that financial security was a result of good work choices and having a shared income with another young person from the age of 20 onwards, which is really rare. Well, and um, yeah, well, and also, I mean, from even before then, right, from the fish and chip shop onwards, it's, you had obviously embedded the habit of, of saving and of money and having that safety net. Yeah, and because the book is written like fable, it, it doesn't go into the actual pounds and pence, but I've had so many readers write to me already saying, thank you for talking about the economics of life change and life choices. I don't go into exactly what I earn or how much our first house costs because that dates a book and it's also not relevant to people reading it from different countries, which people are doing. But I do talk about the economic forces that that constrain what we can, you know, say we summon the courage to change our life. You know, you still got to start with your pounds and pence. Like how much does it cost to rent a bed sit if you're leaving a family in an emergency? You know, when I left my my home at 16 and walked away one day, finally, that was what I had to do first. I got to my grand's house, walked the five miles to my grand's house. But then beyond that, it was like, well, how do I get a grant? What paperwork do I fill in? And that takes a degree of planning and self-control, which if you're bouncing around abusive relationships or you're on substances, where do you summon the mental clarity to also fill in paperwork? Yeah. Yeah. And, uh, you know, and again, Amy Liptrot and Cheryl Strade are great on this. They talk about that, about the difficulty of getting and holding down jobs. Well, and I think it's, it's, again, (laughs) 
it's so useful because I think it's already hard enough to change your life. It's already hard enough to shift course. And then I think when we're confronted with these narratives that make it look a immediate, you know, be dramatic and kind of glamorous and see, as you say, that don't lay out those sort of practical financial and sort of time-based realities of doing these mm -hmm. things. It makes it feel that much more impossible. Yeah. And I, I haven't written a how-to book and of I wouldn't not. dream of doing it, but what I, but I get to speak around the book and yeah. I always say to people, you know, for me, there was a point in my life where I, I felt I never had enough. I had a scarcity mindset, but actually there was a point where I looked at my actual finances and realized I could afford to fully stop for a while and regroup. Yeah. And that because I'd never rested and I'd never taken holidays and I'd never felt safe, for me, that was really important. But yeah. I never counsel it as the actual, it's not, you know, you don't have to give up everything to change your life. Um, you know, it, a lot of the change for me happened in the seven years before I stopped work. You know, the real change was happening in tiny notebooks that are under mm. my bed now when I was kind of writing about the past and thinking about who I wanted to be in the future. And in this alternative journey, I don't see where I would have had that either. Because again, that really quite methodic, you used the word methodical at the beginning of our talk, which I love. Yeah. Thank you. I, something that is a bit of a, it sounds like a very little or dull thing, but it's powered a lot of my life. Yeah. You know, and in this other journey, I don't think the methodical wouldn't have been there. I think the methodical also, I think, belongs to that sort of category of unsexy things. We don't like to talk about it. But as you say, which powers most of our, you know, method powers a lot of our lives yeah. and, you know, daily ritual powers a lot of our lives and these and tiny a, little things. Yeah, that... yeah. And there's a chapter at the very end of the book after I've really I've started my third life, really, because I, I do make a disastrous choice in love. But there's this chapter when that's all behind me and I'm recovering called The Romance and Maintenance, which is a phrase my husband and I got from a book that we read in our 20s um, mm. about buildings and how they change over time. And when we talk about that that's our pleasure and that's what's kept us safe through all sorts of life traumas is like what you make and tend and grow. Yes. And look after as opposed to what you buy and what you chase and what you consume but we have a model in which chance can come in and it can get tended and folded into mm. so we still have that orderly life but now we are more open to chance events so we've got both now that's why absolutely I'm I mean I think I think a lot of that is really true along with you know the the order that you tried to you, you spoke at the very beginning about the order that you were trying to control the trauma with but also that order meant that you've been able to make you know you be methodical and create this sort mm. of container of an existence which now you've been able to allow yeah. some grace into well and of course as we know some some trauma is obliterating yes you know absolutely. lives are destroyed forever it's not always possible to come back I'm always really careful to to, to say let's remember there are some things you can't come back from because yeah. you have no financial resources or physical safety or or home and in this alternative life we're talking about I don't think I would have made it so I don't think I don't think I would have achieved what Amy Liptrot and Cheryl Strayed uh, did. I don't think I would have written one of those fantastic books that are so full of deep and brave experience. I think I would have got myself into such a difficult situation. So you think that you know you talked about in your unlived life the you have this sort of ten years of of dangerous sex and 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 drugs and alcohol and and you hit a catastrophe um which um feels like it's sexual in nature and you think around that point there's no coming back there's either no coming back or i summon some kind of energy and find some kind of funded training which is the, the route that's more open to more people not everyone's going to write books or make their money from art or writing okay a more achievable, proper and really wonderful way of changing our lives is to find a funded route of study or training. Absolutely. Um, but the, I think if, if there was going to be a good outcome, it would be that. It would be in my 30s and 40s, I took the really long, slow route of adult education and training. So what and do you do? What What is it? What do you think you'd find I, some training in? 
I would probably well it was it was funnily enough it will almost take me back to what I did end up doing for 15 years at the university so what I actually did for 15 years was work at a really high level at Sussex University helping other people from working class backgrounds and underrepresented backgrounds get to university I went out and gave talks on how to fill in UCAS forms I set up access schemes to make it easier for people from non-standard backgrounds to get university offers and to get funding Mm. So I did all that. I put all that in place for the university that took me. Um, And I I think that would have been it. I think I would have, I think I would have been a storyteller, but it would have probably come out through a job, a a social care job, or I would be working, say I'd gone back and I'd finish a university degree. And then I'd be one of those mature students that works at their university at the point where they finished their degree. Okay. So you're at a, you end up, you end up doing one of these roles, um, at a at a at a nondescript university, do you do you think that you meet somebody? Do you meet your nigh equivalent? That's the other thing I, I find really moving: the amount of people that tell me, having read this book, there was someone like that for me when I was at university and or in mm. my first job. I met this boy or this girl when I was twenty or twenty one, and they wanted to marry me, and they wanted to share their life with me, and I loved them. And I thought, yeah, but I want to be a journalist, or I want to do this, or I haven't travelled yet. And I thought, I'm so young, that will come round for me. Uh, and the amount of people I meet that has never come round for them. Again. Oh no, Tanya, don't say that. That's so sad. And <gasps> it doesn't mean they haven't got married and had children. Yeah. It doesn't mean they don't love their partners. But what they're saying is that's their unlived life. I, the amount of people that tell me that their life changed tracks at the point where they fell for someone and reasoned themselves out of it because of our Western cultural narrative, yeah. that choice and possibility is a is a real thing and i believe passionately that it is not what does that mean what what is a real thing if choice and possibility aren't choice i think the more choice we have i think it is a it's a sense of potential freedom but it's not material freedom Mm. Um, say more um (laughs) okay so i made a choice to live my life with nye when I was 20 years old. And that has cut off a lot of potential futures, but we actually built something. Mm. We built a shared married language. It's not just about the house and the savings. We have a shared married language. We helped each other grow and change. And sometimes we resisted those changes, but even that is a way that you shape around someone else's great friend. It doesn't have to be sexual or in marriage or heteronormative it can be great friendships it can any choice to choose or it can be in a a job where you choose a career and you stick with it yeah but our cultural western cultural narrative is about individualism and possibility and choice and also there's always going to be more choices well and also that that your choice and i think more and more now than ever that that your choice choices define you in this way that becomes a sort of personal brand, doesn't it? So the choices you make end up being this sort of statement to the universe about who you are as opposed to... I think that's a lovely way of phrasing it. Yeah, like it's a brand. It's like a lifestyle choice. Of course. Um, I love that. I really love that. Um, (laughs) and, And against that backdrop, can we just touch the question of whether whether there is anybody else in this unlived life. It's obviously not nine. It's not this. It's not and it's nine. not this thing you've built. I would not know what it's like to share a long first life with somebody. I I would have that wish and yearning for closeness. I, I'm not an avoidant person. I love closeness. I love mm. connection. So I would be wanting that. Um, and maybe, but I, I feel for me, it would have come through the stability of work. So okay. I think I would have been in my late 30s and 40s. I would be a mature student. I would have finally graduated. Well done. Congratulations. An ad, and I would have found that admin job that I got in my 20s. And then I would hopefully have met somebody through work. I'd be the kind of person that met someone through work. Yeah. Because um, having got out of that twen- the lost 20s, I would not be wanting to to go there again. So yeah. it would definitely be quite a sober, <laughs> you know, it would be methodical. 
that's almost where the unlived life starts joining up with this life because mm. I think that's also true in stories of 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 track changes and doorways is that what's really interesting to me because I talk like you I talk to people about their life choices all the time yeah um isn't it great that we get to do that I know um, what what I find and I don't know if you agree is that there's a certain point in that narrative and that laddering you've taken me through of and then and then and then where you start to go oh now at that point that's where it joins back up with the, the self I am now yeah it's yeah. just happened in a different place at a different time with different scenery setting perhaps well because I think and I think the the reason is is that it's all the self you are now I think that's why so even mm. the unlived life it represents you know what you 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 know define as your sort of your darker like some darker tendencies or a kind of impulse towards sexuality or an impulse towards self-destructiveness mm. you know those things are you know, they're all a part of us. You've just imagined it. So it's definitely mm. a part of you. And so mm. like, you know, you know, and we, we have to do it within a tidy two hours, you know, so we kind of, yeah, we, yeah. we end up sort of inching back in that direction. But yeah, I think that's, it's because it is all your life. And, and even if we now suddenly in a mini form did the unlived life with a more positive spin. Mm. So say I got to Cambridge because of these pool party parents. Yeah. I got in. And like Jeanette Winterston, I absolutely fly. And yeah. I and like Zadie Smith, another working class, brilliant girl who I think she was Cambridge. She's my contemporary. But look mm. how different our paths were. She came from a working class family. So she and Winterston entered. They were working class kids who got the top class education and they come out with their big books and they belong to British establishment life ever after. So let's say that was my version and the pool party really did open. That would have been the direct line from the pool. That's the best case scenario. The pool party leads to me going to Oxbridge, leads to me writing my book while I'm there, leads to me having lived a public life as a writer ever since my early 20s. Yeah. Because that is the only thing I ever wanted to be. Yeah. Well, Whereas actually I'm almost 50 and it's only the last seven years where I've had a, a kind of small but sturdy growing public life. It's interesting because while we've been talking, see if I can figure out how to put this, there has been part of me that's kind of gone, oh no, something's gone wrong and I should have led her to Zadie Smith's life. Like, I, you know, it's sort of, there was part of me that kind of wanted to make it tidy and make it nice and go, no, yeah. you do great. You find a mentor in your, with your artsy friends. She has to like come out of Cambridge with like top marks and, and be a writer by the mm. time she's 23. And I... I like that we went a little dark. I think I think it's really interesting. I like it, but I like it, but it feels right now that I've done a mini version, which is the the more because of course again, even that we know that it, life's not one big sunbeam for these people. I don't know no. about their private life, but no. we assume they have their usual shares of joy and misfortune. But they've had a secure public identity. Yes, and I've got to say I do love being a public person. I'm not rich. I'm not famous, but I absolutely am a public person. Yeah. And I know the difference. Having been so private for so long, I know the difference. And I love being a public person. I love that you reached out to me. I love that readers contact me. I love that I go and meet people. I get invited to people's private homes. Mm. And I say yes. But again, this is where this is where I'm so sure I'm in my right life. It's almost like all the time it took to get to here. Yeah. All the quiet, obscure years, all the times I turned away from risk and opportunity is what makes me the writer of this particular book, which is why, as it says, where does it begin? Why do so many of us turn away from risk and adventure, hide in routine, shrink from opportunity? That's the key question I ask in the last minute, that last perpetual minute when I'm dying, when I've gone through regret and I've gone through fear into the realization that I think I am about to die and I get this wonderful existential perpetual minute to go, what the hell is all this about? And I go back, that's why the first half of the book, I go back, as you know, I go back before yeah. the book goes forwards. I go back through my story of these moments, the pool party, my mother turning away. Where does it begin? That's what makes me the writer of this particular book with this particular work to do in the world. Because it's the kind of book I'm going to be talking about for years. You say <laughs> that it's a book that you're going to be talking about for many years to come. And I am very certain that it's a book that others will be talking about for many years to come because Thank it's you. such a special work. 
I think that we, I think that's sort of kind of a nice place to end. What do you think? I do. Thank yeah. you. Thank you so I've much been, for doing this. Been, I, honestly, I've been near to tears. I've um, felt excited. I mean, it's it's a really powerful thing you do. Thank you very much. At the beginning of our conversation, Tanya mentioned her desire as a child and young woman for things to be tidy, to keep things neat and contained, and said this was what had kept her for so many years from a fully lived life of risk and connection. This impulse towards tidiness is not uncommon, especially in young women, and was certainly one I experienced while we were talking as I found myself panicked that I hadn't managed to guide her into the perfect unlived life. Instead, after an initial burst of fun and engagement with a group of people she felt were kindred spirits, Tanya's unlived life went down the route of many memoirists whose work she admires, a life untethered, completely out of control, and ultimately dangerous, the opposite of tidy and contained, a nightmare scenario that is reality for too many without a solid web of support. It's possible that an unlived life full of early writing success might have been fun, but I think the fact that we were able to visit a place where she truly lost control demonstrates just how far Tanya has come since her chaotic upbringing left her clinging to, as she puts it, order and respectability. Unlike that day at the pool party when she poked her head around the fence but didn't go in, now she can dive deep into the abyss knowing she is safe and can always pull herself back out. 